Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Professor Peter Doherty. Professor Doherty is a Nobel Prize-winning veterinary surgeon. His prize-winning research focused on how the immune system reacts to viruses, and he wrote a book on pandemics in 2013. This episode is about all things COVID. Professor Doherty goes into detail about the physiology of COVID, what happens when you get infected. We talk about the way mRNA vaccines work. We talk about whether masks and lockdowns work. We talk about the differences between COVID and the flu. We talk about the ethics of pressuring people to get vaccinated. We discuss the reasons why people choose not to get vaccinated. We talk about the Delta variant and long COVID. And finally, we talk about ivermectin and its potential use as a treatment or prophylactic. I assume I have some audience overlap with the Dark Horse podcast, which is run by Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying. And I know that some people have drawn the lesson from listening to that show that taking ivermectin is better than getting the vaccine. So if that describes you, please listen to Professor Doherty discuss ivermectin. Finally, there's a lot of biological detail in this podcast, but I highly recommend you stick it out because Professor Doherty is a brilliant thinker and excellent communicator. So without further ado, Professor Peter Doherty. Okay, Professor Doherty, thanks so much for coming on my podcast. You're welcome. It's a delight to talk to you. So um, can you give people just a quick summary of your background in medicine and how you came to be interested in pandemics? Sure. I'm an experimentalist, a research scientist. I started out training in veterinary science, veterinary medicine, and uh, I've worked all my life, and firstly on domestic animals and then medical research communities on the problem of infection and immunity. I'm very interested in how viruses cause disease and how our immune systems deal with them and how we use interventions like vaccines and so forth to protect us. I'm currently pretty much into retirement and would have been much more retired if it hadn't been for the pandemic. I wrote previously a book on pandemics back in um, 2013, Pandemics, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's a kind of pandemics for dummies. It, It was reasonably good, but it missed out on really an understanding of the sociological and economic dimension, though there are figures quoted like a um, an influenza pandemic, a serious one would cost us trillions of dollars. I think you have to live through these experiences to truly understand them. And of course, I'm a lab-based scientist in my career. I'm the patron and namesake of the Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity in Melbourne, Australia. We've been one of the leading laboratories dealing with the pandemic in this country. 
And the reason my name's on the building is I shared the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1996 with a Swiss colleague, Rolf Zirkenagel, for our work on the cellular immune response, which changed thinking about that whole area of immunity. Yeah, so you're, you're the perfect person to talk to about all things COVID. And that, the, the book you wrote in 2013 is actually where I wanted to start. So I'm curious what about the, the, the recent pandemic challenged any of your assumptions that you had in, in 2013? Can you go into a little more detail there with the, the economic and, and socio, sociological uh, sort of points that you hadn't fully realized? Yes, I, the, the response in Australia has been pretty uniform. Uh, we are a federated system like yours. We have basically eight different administrations of various types uh, and, and then a federal parliament. So uh, we have some of the same issues that you have with different states doing different things. And, uh, but uniformly in Australia, we've handled this by exclusion. We're an island. As an island continent, we're the same size as the 48 lower United States. But we have a population of about, I think it's about 27 million now, compared with your population, which is more than 10 times ours. And part of the reason our population is relatively small is a lot of our land is desert. But uh, many of us accumulated into big cities. So we've been dealing with successive lockdowns and the sociological and economic consequences of those for, for instance, uh, restaurants, cafes, work. People can do some jobs from home, but obviously you can't run a restaurant from home all that well, though you can if you, you deliver. So, so the economic consequences and the sociological consequences have been quite, uh, quite an eye-opener, really, to understand just how that is. I thought back in 2013, yes, the internet allows us to do a lot of work from home. Yes, the way we're organised with, as we see, for instance, through Amazon, we're well set up to deliver everything to the home. But it's much more complicated than that when it actually gets down to people. And uh, I've long known that the sociological aspect is enormously important in infectious disease. Those of us who are, what I'd say, hard-nosed lab researchers came to understand that with the AIDS pandemic. We realised just how important the behavioural and communications component is in dealing with a pandemic. And we also realised how very important the public health component is. Our country acted pretty aggressively back at the time of HIV AIDS. We had free needle exchange out there very quickly. We had uh, non-judgmental medical clinics operating very fast. And that worked from both sides of politics. We have a right and a left, as you do, and both sides uh, shared in that and, and came onto the party. So I w- I'm aware of all those sociological and economic areas vaguely, but it's not my field, of course. My field is the actual understanding of diseases themselves and, and how the immune response operates in those diseases. So the pandemics book had something on that. And, and also one of the things I did say that was right is it's enormously important to keep our public health system in absolutely optimal shape and that with the cost-cutting um, neoliberal type, you know, cut taxes, cut regulation type governments we've had in, across the Western world in many cases, public health, like all public spending, has had some 
contraction. And I think that's proved to be dangerous. And we saw it in the way that um, the US first responded to this virus, which, uh, of course, there are complex reasons for the way the US responded, as we know. But I don't think some of the public health system was operating optimally. So let's just start out with a question about the virus itself. In your book, you imagined that a pandemic could plausibly kill between 100 and 200 million people around the world in, in a kind of worst case scenario. And so the COVID, at the last count I saw, was something like four and a half million deaths worldwide. So is it, is it pure luck that COVID just happened not to be more deadly? Or is there any principled reason, principle of virology, why, why COVID couldn't have been more deadly? That those big figures were based on the 1918-19 influenza pandemic, where we had really no science-based solutions at all no vaccines, no, no possibility of treatments. And we believe somewhere between 50 and 100 million people died worldwide in a global population, which would have been about a quarter of our population today, a third maybe. So many fewer people on the planet and very high death rates. But there are many factors in that. I think secondary bacterial infection, we could do something about that undoubtedly kill a lot of people. So with COVID, Initially, it looked like a bad flu, though we're saying it's not flu because it wasn't. And we were wondering where it would go. And initially, the death rates looked to be high. They looked to be 4 or 5% because what we were taking as a case definition was people who were sick. So if you take people who are sick as a case definition with COVID and then you look at death rates, they look quite high, 3 4% even. But what we've done with this infection, which we've never done with any infection before in the history of humanity, is we've had a very good, very specific test that we've rolled out there very quickly to test large numbers of people, often in a public health sense, to test for contacts of infected patients and all the rest of it. So what we've realised is it was, we quickly realised there was an enormous amount of asymptomatic infection. And the death rates, I think, probably in a country like uh, that has top-rate medical care and uh, before the vaccine were probably around somewhere between 0.3 and 0.8% of those who were being infected, not really those high rates that we thought. Still bad. The global death rates that are published, they really depend on reporting from various countries. Honestly, I don't think we know it would be highly probable. Death rates across the world would be maybe twice, maybe even more than that of what's actually been reported. And uh, it's, it's interesting that in this age of information, we still really don't know or get a lot of that information, basically. So, so we don't know really the story there. We know the story from countries like the United States and from our country, where you've got a very actively organised public health system and good reporting and so forth. So the other thing about COVID, though, is it's not just about death. It's not just about the permanent damage that happens to people after they've spent a long time in ICU, in intensive care, or actually on a ventilator. We've known about that forever from what happens with flu pretty regularly. We know that people who come out of that experience are often never going to be as well again, and they may be looking at a shorter lifespan. But what we didn't realise was some of the other effects of this virus that, um, that can be quite pernicious. 
in those who have really a relatively mild infection. And we're thinking particularly of the long COVID phenomenon where many people, maybe initially up to 30%, are suffering symptoms for several months and maybe 1% to 5% are suffering a form of permanent debility, which uh, uh, we don't associate with previous infections. And as we went along, we realised that this is a very different virus and that it operates in a very different way from the influenza virus. And we could expand on that if you want. Yeah, no, I would love to expand on that because obviously this was a huge topic of debate at the very beginning of COVID with some people insisting that it was just the same as the flu or in, a, in any relevant sense, the same as a flu. And then obviously many people pointing out how different it was. So can you talk a little bit about those differences? And okay. also okay. S- somewhere in, in your answer, can you indicate even in the best case scenario, you have a 20 year old with a perfectly healthy immune system in that case to that person, should they treat COVID differently than the flu? Having a perfectly healthy immune system doesn't necessarily protect you against these types of infections. In fact, large numbers of people who died in 1918-19 from influenza were very fit young adults. Then we saw a little bit of that in the 2009 influenza pandemic, which generally wasn't very severe, but we saw quite a number of fit young adults in uh, intensive care units. And one of the problems with these infections is we can get what you call a cytokine storm. That is the non-specific innate response. There's a a very non-specific component. We divide our immune response into two parts, the innate response, which is very non-specific and is right across the animal kingdom, really. Uh, and I'm, I'm, in animals, I'm including flies and, and, and worms as well as us. And we share many of those mechanisms with those lower life forms. That's a very quick, immediate type response. And it often leads to pumping out a lot of toxic chemicals to try to kill out the invader. But if you pump out too much of that toxic chemical as a result of trying to get rid of the invader, they're called cytokines and chemokines. You can get what's called a cytokine storm and you can get your blood vessels leaking and people actually dying of of drowning in their own lung fluid and so forth. There is an element of that in COVID. There's an element of it can be in flu. Uh, It's not the main thing, I think, in this this disease, but it, it comes on later. But that's part of it. And then you get the adaptive immunity that comes on later. So, so fit young adults, though younger people are less likely to get a severe infection, that equation has been changing quite a bit with Delta, in fact. And we're seeing in Melbourne where we have very, very good, because we have relatively low numbers of infections, we're still trying to control it. We see, I think, the majority of people in hospital currently in Melbourne are under 50. The same is true uh, in our state to our north, New South Wales, where we're getting a much bigger outbreak. Many younger people are in hospital, uh, more children in hospital, just because the virus is more infectious. I don't think it's become more virulent. I think it's just more infectious. So more people are being infected. But we are seeing more young people in hospital. And young people should not discount getting COVID because people of any age are developing this long COVID problem where they may be asymptomatic or even mildly infected. And then maybe a month, maybe six weeks later, they start to get these symptoms of lethargy, uh, brain fog, not um, shortness of breath, not wanting to walk. This can go on for months, and we really don't know how long it will go on 
because we haven't lived with long COVID long enough. We know some people are affected by this for a very long time. So there's a real toll there right across the age spectrum. Clearly, the elderly are much more at risk because of declining immune system and, what, and the death numbers go up after about age 60. But young people are not at no risk and they can die from it. And part of the reason for that is the way this virus works. When we started thinking about it, we thought influenza and COVID, viruses have to get into your body. Now, viruses are totally inert particles. All they are is a bit of genetic material. They're absolutely tiny, and they're wrapped in a bit of protein, a bit of fat, and a bit of sugar. They're just to protect. Sounds yummy. Material. Yeah, they're tiny, tiny, tiny things. They're, they're biological. They're completely natural, except they can kill us. Now, basically, they can't move themselves around. That bacteria have, can have bacteria whole cells. You know, so we're talking about Staphylococcus or something. It's a cell. It, it can move. They often move itself around, do all sorts of things. Viruses can't. They're just purely inert. So they float around in the air or we get them injected into us in some way. The Zika virus was injected into us by a mosquito when it took a blood meal. The noroviruses that cause diarrhea outbreaks on cruise ships, they come in via the mouth. They have to get in through either our mucous membranes. They're the, the types of cells that line the gut and the inside of our body. Uh, which is to some extent outside because it's connecting directly with the, the atmosphere and so or, or with uh, we're taking in food. And, or they can get in through the skin, but that's uh, smallpox would be a case like that perhaps. But basically they have to get in. So to get infected with COVID, you're most likely to breathe it in. Okay, so it'll come into your nose and it'll grow. It will then try to find a molecule called ACE2. This is a, a molecule that's on the surface of many, many, many types of our cells throughout the body. And it's a, normally an important molecule in physiological function. But it's actually the receptor for the virus. The, the spike protein, the, the coronavirus has nine proteins in it. One on the surface is called the spike. It sticks up and it's got a crown-like top to it, which is why it's called a corona. Now, that corona stick spike wants to bind to that ACE2 molecule on a cell so it can get into the cell. Once that happens, it can get into the cell. And that's how viruses operate. They can't multiply themselves. They're totally inert. They have to just bump into a cell they can infect. And then they get into the cell, they take over the cell, and when one virus particle comes out, it'll make 100,000 copies, say. Now, Maybe 90,000 of those are non-infectious, but maybe 10,000 are. So they come out and they can infect other cells in us. And they, when we breathe them out, they will infect other cells and other people. So it's all due, the virus gets into the cell, multiplies in the cell, gets out. And all it does in an evolutionary sense, the virus doesn't want to do anything, but if you think it in those terms, all it wants to do is maintain in nature by multiplying in cells and infecting other cells in us or in other people. And it has to infect cells in other people as well. So that's all it does. So the Delta variant that we're dealing with now is just a virus that multiplies a lot better than the viruses we first encountered. So if you think of, of it like an 800 meter foot race in the Olympics. The 
the Wuhan virus from 2020 and late 2019 ran at about the same pace as an Olympic runner ran in 1902. You know, a lot of these guys were gentlemen. They were probably up drinking the night before and then they ran the race the next day. You know, and they didn't train except when they were at the Olympics. So, but what it's like now is an Olympic runner from 2020 and they run a hell of a lot faster. And this virus just runs faster. It just runs faster than the early strains. And that's why it's such a menace. Okay, so it's up here in the nose. That's where it multiplies initially. You don't feel much, but you may lose your sense of smell. That was one of the first things that happened in, uh, with, with the early strains of COVID particularly. You lose your sense of smell, probably because it grows in some cells that are involved with the, what we call the olfactory neurons. These are the smell, smell cells where we sense smell. And, and these cells that help to maintain them are called sustentacular cells. Complicated word, but it's basically just the cells around them that keeps them in good shape. And the reason that we probably lose smell is because the virus can infect those cells. So it's multiplying up here. So what it also does is like flu, it'll go further down into the lung and then you get pneumonia. And that's what we saw first with, with this. We thought this is a pneumonia. It's like flu. It's a terrible pneumonia. It's different. It's bad. And we don't have any immunity to it in the population because we haven't seen it before, but it's kind of like that. So it gets into your lung and it causes what the people who do radiology, you know, the people who do imaging, they put you under one of those things and do this or they put you in front of an X-ray or something. It causes what I call ground glass lesions in the lung. That is the bits of the lung, instead of looking nice and open and, and, and with airways and all the rest of it, look like ground glass. Now, that's pretty horrible. You don't want that. And that can cause permanent damage. And so you can get permanent lung damage as in flu. And then what we then saw, of course, was that people are just gasping for oxygen. The people that are sick just aren't getting enough oxygen. And we have to have oxygen. We're an oxygen-breathing chemical machine, if you like. And if you don't have oxygen, you're gone. So basically, you're, you're kind of drowning, basically. So, so that's what we thought initially. It's like that, causing bad damage to the lungs. People aren't getting enough oxygen. They're dying. But then we started to realise something else was going on. I think, if I'm correct, that the first person to pick this up was a pathologist who was doing postmortems in New York. And basically what we started to understand is that unlike flu, which is just a respiratory tract infection, this virus gets into our blood and goes around the body in the blood. Now, flu in human beings just doesn't normally do that. You can see it happen and people are very, very sick. You may find a bit of virus in the blood, but you don't normally. But this virus goes into the blood. It's what we call a viremic infection or a systemic infection. Now, once something gets into the blood, it's a way because all your body organ, everything in you is now exposed to that virus. So flu stays in the lung. Only the cells in the lung are really damaged. You can get heart damage and stuff, but due to the host response more than anything else, that cytokine storm thing I talked about at the beginning. So the virus is in your blood. It's getting around your body. It can get into your heart. It can kill cells in your heart muscles. You get, you get cardiac damage. People who are diabetic are at great risk because their kidneys are in not great shape, can infect cells in your kidneys. And worst of all, it can infect cells in the lining of the blood vessels. Now, what that does 
is it makes those cells look bad and it causes clotting, what we call, it's a coagulopathy, blood clot. It causes blood clot. And you can get massive blood clots, which will cause heart attacks and stroke. You know, that's the cause of strokes and heart attacks. But this thing causes that. That's why when you hear of a young, fit person getting COVID, not being all that sick and suddenly dropping dead, they probably had a heart attack or a stroke or something. Okay, but, but even worse than that, if you look at the, the lung, the lung sort of ends up in what we call the terminal alveoli, these little sacs right at the end of the airway. And that's where the red blood cells that carry the carbon dioxide from our body, which we have to get rid of, exchange it for oxygen and then take it around the body to feed oxygen to the cells. So that's the, those terminal alveoli are enormously important. And there are very, very delicate blood vessels that, that interact with that, that mucous membrane. And those very delicate blood vessels were full of what we call microclots. It looked as though instead of just being full of red blood cells, they were full of what looked like bunches of grapes. So that's why this is such a bad disease. And that blood phase, I think, is probably the basis of most long COVID. But we don't understand really what's happening there in the longer term. And do we know yet? Of course, eventually gets rid of the virus and people can start to get better, hopefully. Mm. But we can talk more about immunity. Yeah, we're, I want to talk a lot about vaccines, and I, I suspect that there are some vaccine skeptics and anti-vaxxers in, in my audience that can hopefully benefit from from this conversation. But before we get to that, I want to just, uh, so do we know yet the odds of developing long COVID? It, it's very hard to get good information because, I mean, there are a lot of studies out there, and there's a whole lot of work being done, some by really terrific places, but it's complicated. It's complicated because, first of all, uh, I think we're confusing several different things. I, I think a lot of some of long COVID, some of the persistent effect COVID is what I talked about at the beginning, where you go into an ICU, you're very sick, and, and there's a lot of damage, the results. A lot of damage just being in an ICU for a long time because of the, you're lying um, in this. One of the things that doctors learned early on was to prone people roll them over onto their stomach. They get, that uses parts of the lung that aren't all gummed up, and people often benefit from that before they need to get oxygen. One of the reasons why it's very difficult and why we've had a lot of, a lot of deaths in people who are heavily overweight because it's very hard to roll them onto their stomach and for them to maintain that position. So basically, I think part of what we call long COVID is what I'd call post-COVID. It's basically there's been a lot of damage and, you, and you're damaged permanently. You may have heart damage, lung damage, kidney damage. You're never going to be the same. And people are reporting after that type of experience that they're about half as good as what they were before when they, when they had to do a task or, or do something. They're, they're, they're just slow and they're tired and so forth. That's one part of it. The other part of it is, though, people that are really pretty asymptomatic and then develop these long symptoms. And, and commonly, it's up to 30% that have, um, have basically some symptoms for three to six, three months at least, maybe six months, 25% maybe six months, some symptoms, not, not really severe, but they're dull and they've got a bit of a brain fog and maybe they're a bit short of breath sometimes and a bit achy when they don't expect to be. They're just not feeling good. 
that can go on and that, that can be a pretty high percentage of people, I think. And then I think we've got somewhere between one and 5% who are really suffering this in a very long time. And so sometimes it's getting worse and we don't really understand what's going on there, I think. A lot of people are working on it. But I'd say, you know, if you get COVID, you, you've got, you know, maybe a 20% chance of really feeling pretty crap for um, a couple of months. And um, that, so that's, uh, you know, one of the obvious reasons everyone needs to get vaccinated. Yeah. So, so before we get to the vaccines, this is just another very basic question. Do masks reduce transmission? And, and then the second question, do lockdowns work? Yeah, I think it's inevitable that masks do reduce transmission. They also affect your behavior, I think. I mean, at the moment, we're mandating masks outside, but probably at most, in most cases that doesn't do much, but it, it, it makes people conscious of what's mm-hmm. going on. Our lockdown certainly worked in Australia up till the Delta strain. We lock down regularly. You can stop it by lockdowns. Uh, there's, there's a lot of social and economic damage and a lot of kickback against that now. People have got over this. They've had enough of it. But they, they can work. And I think if you look at the performance in the United States, I have a son who lives there, a medical doctor, and they, they were locked down quite a bit. And Seattle, Washington has had a pretty good good run with COVID. They've never been overrun with it. And uh, Washington State, of course, is a state where, where traditionally, you know, they do take rational decisions and they do have rational policy. So basically, yes, I think yeah, lockdowns can work uh, pretty well. But with Delta, it's right at the edge. I, I think um, there's a term called the r naught used by the epidemiologists. I'm not an epidemiologist, but, but an r naught means if you've got an r naught of one, one infected person infects another person. So the big drive is always to get the r naught down below one. So if you can get the r naught down to 0.8, then gradually the virus will go out of your, your, your population. But at the moment in uh, Sydney to our north, we think the r naught is about 1.4 with lockdowns. Now, with Delta, it's much more infectious. So the, the original strains were about as infectious as flu. So we'd think of them as an r naught about 2.2. 2.3 or something like that. Now, the r naught, variously quoted in various places, is somewhere between five and nine, okay? So Sydney to our north is holding the r naught to 1.4, which means they've now got, they started from one case, as Melbourne did. Melbourne started from one case. We've got about 60 cases in Victoria. The, the populations are very similar. Sydney started from one case, they're, they're now getting about 1,000 cases a day. And with an R-naught of 1.4, I, I'm not sure of the calculation, but I think that doubles every two weeks or something. So, so let's talk about the vaccine. M- many places to start here, but let's just start with the questions of whether the vaccine is safe. Right. Well, the vaccines that are being used in the United States are the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, and the Johnson & Johnson adenovirus vector vaccine. What the, what the vaccines do is they deliver messenger RNA to make the virus spike protein. As I mentioned, the virus has nine proteins. They've taken the one protein that is the one that's important for what we call the antibody response, and they've taken the genetic messenger RNA to that makes that, and they've injected that into people. Now, let's just talk about how the virus multiplies for a start. The genetic material of this virus 
everything above the bacteria up into us, their genetic material is transmitted as DNA and it goes into the nucleus. There's a bit of DNA in our mitochondria, what we call the maternal DNA, but basically it's in the nucleus. So these viruses, coronaviruses, flu viruses, HIV, they're all RNA viruses. They transmit their genetic information as RNA. Now, what that RNA does when it gets into the cell is it uncoats and it, it, it organizes and it makes a copy and it makes messenger RNA. So the messenger RNA is the stuff that makes the protein. So RNA, DNA, nucleic acids, they're an information system, a coding system, right? Protein is the building blocks of the body. Uh, muscles are built of myosin protein. Um, you know, protein, uh, we are protein, basically, and other things as well, minerals and bones and all the rest of it, but basically protein. So, so basically the virus has to have its protein made. So it's the spike protein that that mRNA is making, and it's in a form where it can't, that mRNA can't multiply itself. You can get self-replicating mRNA-type system, but that's not what's being used. It's an mRNA. Once it gets into a cell, it stays in the cytoplasm, doesn't go into the nucleus, and it makes protein. And it can't infect another cell. It can't replicate itself, and it certainly can't rep infect anybody else. And there's all sorts of disinformation and misunderstanding and a mix of malevolence and ignorance out there about this. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a bit different. It uses a, what we call a packaging vector, an adenovirus. It, it sends DNA across, actually. It's uh, the viral RNA is converted to DNA. The virus has DNA in it, again, but it can't multiply and it can't infect other cells and it can't transmit. The DNA makes the mRNA, which goes into the cytoplasm. There's no way this stuff is getting back into our genomes. There's sort of, sort of someone's done some experiments in tissue culture with infection and people are thinking, well, it gets into our genome. There's no way it does. And basically, and nobody's found it in there. And so, so there's a lot of craziness around about this. So, so it's a product that's injected, it doesn't multiply, and it doesn't infect anybody else. Now, what happens when you get a vaccine in the arm? Well, firstly, okay, you get a jab in the arm. So you've got a nice nurse or a doctor or a vaccinator or someone or a pharmacist who jabs. You, you come into the place, you sit down. Usually she asks, you know, are you okay? Are you ready for this sort of thing? And what they do is they take their needle that's got sitting there and they stick it in your arm and they jam in about a mill or two of stuff that's got the vaccine, okay? So a lot of pressure in that. Going into your arm. And some of it will go into the muscle in the arm here, the deltoid muscle, but a lot of it will go into what we call the interstitial space. I mean, we're built up of cells. Cells are built of proteins. And, and around those cells, we have fluid. We, we call it the interstitial fluid, and that's bathing the cells from the outside. And you've got then, of course, blood coming in as well. So it goes into the interstitial space. Now, some of it will be taken up by cells we call macrophages, macro phage, big eater. These are cells that eat things and they kind of destroy them. So, and then some of it will be taken up by another cell type called a dendritic cell, which is the key cell for stimulating the immune response. So it'll be in cells, some of it'll be in the fluid, some may be in macrophages. Now what happens with the interstitial fluid? So we're in the arm, we've got some maybe in the muscle, we've got some in the interstitial fluid. 
Well, that will immediately drain in our second circulation. You know, we've got two circulations. We've got the blood, which carries things around the body and takes oxygenated blood, which is arterial blood, which is red, and oxygen depleted blood, which is venous blood, which is somewhat bluer in colour uh, due to the colour of the pigments in the red blood cell. So, but the, we also have a lymphatic system. The lymphatic system is what happens, what, what is the system of, for draining the stuff that's gone across into the cells and into the interstitial fluid. It's the great drain of the body. And what that lymphatic system does, it goes this tiny little ducts, it's got its own tiny little vessels. It drains into a checkpoint station, a filter station, if you like. And in the case of a vaccine going into the arm, the stuff that's in the lymph or the interstitial fluid, which is all the, most of the vaccine, will then go into what we call the regional lymph nodes, the axillary lymph nodes, which are in the armpit. You might call them glands. Uh, women will be familiar if they've had radical mastectomy, their glands will have been stripped because tumor cells can get into them as well. And, you know, if you've had radical mastectomy, it'd be best to get your vaccine in the side that didn't have the lymph nodes stripped or get it somewhere else, maybe in the butt or something. But basically, so it'll, everything then goes into the lymph node. So that's where it's trapped. And it won't go any further. Now, there are reports that there, you can find some of the spike protein in blood. And maybe you can. It's in picogram amounts. A picogram is a trillionth of a gram. That's not going to do anything to you. And if anyone's frightened, the spike is going to make them infertile uh, or it's going to damage their, cause them damage in some way. It's really total bullshit. I must say, one of the books I admire most in all the world is Al Franken's little book on bullshit. I think everyone should read it. But basically, bullshit is toxic. So basically, so here we have the vaccine. It's all trapped in the armpit. It's not going any further. It's not going into your blood. It's in the armpit, in those glands. Now, what happens then? So what happens then is our innate response. The one we talked about initially about being nonspecific, sometimes being too much and sometimes being toxic. The innate response gets going, and that's why you can have what we call a reactogenic response. You can feel like crap for a couple of days or three or four days because you're getting these toxic chemicals pumped out. Some of them will get into your blood, and if they go to your brain, they can make you feel drowsy, they can give you fever, and they can do all sorts of things. And that's, as someone described it, it's one of nature's way telling, of telling you to slow down if you get yeah, the infection. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I made the mistake of drinking the night that I got my vaccine and I have very little memory of that night. That's all I'll say. And not because I drank too much, but because of the interaction with the vaccine. Yeah, all sorts of things are going on just from yeah. what's happening here. Just from what's happening here. And, and because a lot of this stuff can get pumped out. And you'll also get inflammation, other cells coming into your arm, and that will be painful too. So your muscle may be painful. Your arm may be painful. Your, uh, your lymph nodes may feel painful because what's happening in the lymph nodes now is the immune response is getting underway. So how does that work? Well, all immune responses depend on cells. We've got two, and we know we've got red cells circulating that carry the oxygen, and we've got the white cells circulating, which the immune cells, basically, mostly. 
and uh, they do. There are other ones there as well that do various things that are less specific, but mainly they're the immune cells. And what we have happening in the lymph node, and for someone who's never encountered the vaccine before or never encountered the virus before, is we have what are called naive white blood cells or naive lymphocytes. They've never in, they're naive because they've they've been they've never encountered what they're going to experience, so to speak. And each of those has a, has a receptor on its surface. And there's an enormous diversity of these receptors. On the one hand, we have what are called the B lymphocytes. And they have receptors on their surface, which are basically the mimic of what will later be the antibody molecules that float around in your blood. So the B cells are the beginnings of the antibody forming cell response and the antibody response, which is the important response in vaccination. Then we have other cells circulating as well. We have the T cells. They divide into two classes, the CD4's main classes, CD4 and CD8. If you ever followed the AIDS literature, you will have realised that the reason people's immune response was destroyed before they had drugs was that the AIDS virus infected the CD4 T cells, which really totally screwed up the whole immune system. The CD4 T cells are what we call helper cells. They're essential for making good antibody response, and they're also essential for making a good what we call CD8 T cell or killer response. Now, the killer T cells are just that. So we've got naive B cells, naive CD4 T cells, naive CD8 T cells. They're what we call resting lymphocytes. They're tiny cells, have almost no cytoplasm, and uh, they were always considered pretty boring by the hematologists, the people that studied blood. So what happens then in the lymph node? These things come into the lymph node, and what happens is that very rare cell, a very, very rare cell that has that surface receptor that's going to be an antibody that recognises what we call the receptor-binding domain on the spike protein. That's the one that binds to the ACE2 and causes the infection, sets the infection up. That very rare antibody-forming cell that sees that and the very rare T cells that see other aspects of the virus, I won't go into detail and on it, it's complicated. That very rare... Uh, B cell and T cell, they start to divide. And they'll divide about every six hours. Now, you think, you just do the mathematics on a cell that's dividing every six hours. Within seven or eight days, you've got enormous numbers of cells. What will happen is, basically because all these white blood cells are being pulled in, and because these cells are now starting to divide and divide and divide, so it's going very rapidly. And the CD4 cells are providing the helper cells, are providing some chemical stuff that needs to keep that going and make it work properly and the killer T cells are dividing as well. After about six to eight days, 10 days, these cells will start to come out into your circulation because they've, they've been activated, as we put it, and they're, they're now maturing, and then they're ready to leave. So they come out in what we call the efferent lymphatics, the lymphatic drainage of the lymph nodes. So the lymph nodes are way station. The lymph comes in in what we call the afferent lymphatics, and it goes out in the efferent. And then that goes back into a big duct called the common thoracic duct, and it'll drain, it drains back into your blood. So everything comes back into your blood via those filter stations, which are also the site of the immune response. So now you've got these B lymphocytes in your blood. Now, some of those are going to settle in your bone marrow, in anywhere in the body, bone marrow in the body. Once these cells are out in the blood, they'll go everywhere. They'll go into tissues, they'll go into various places. So basically, some of these settle in the bone marrow, and then they differentiate further from fairly small lymphocytes to be big protein-producing 
plasma cell. And the plasma cells are the cells that are pumping out the antibodies. And these are the main things that protect us in this infection. So they'll pump them out in the blood and we'll get lots of them in blood. So about two weeks after vaccination, you're starting to get some of these antibodies in your blood. A month after you've had the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine, you're getting reasonable amounts. And when you get a booster shot three or four weeks later, what that does is it simply causes those what we call the memory B cells, not the ones that are localised to become plasma cells, that they get dragged back into the node again and they will multiply more. So you get more of these cells. And it's all about numbers. More of these cells, you get more memory cells. And these memory cells can stick around for decades from other infections. And, and they will keep renewing this plasma cell thing. So there you've got it. You've got antibody-forming cells in your blood. You've got T cells in your blood. Now, the killer T cells, their job, they stay as cells. They don't secrete a product. Their job is to go into tissues, find those infected factory cells where the virus is being produced, and they do just what they're described to do. They kill them. Uh, they're, the, they're the hit man of the immune system, basically. They zap those cells. And by getting rid of those virus-infected cells, you start to bring the infection to an end. The antibodies in the blood, though, are the primary protection against infection. They're our protective mechanism. And they will, they will be there. And we, we know from COVID that they are gradually decreasing in amounts, but they're still pretty good out of about eight months to a year. And the vaccines are working very well. Not quite as well against Delta as they did against the original strain, better than against some of the other strains that have come up. One's called Beta, which is they don't work as well against. But they're working well and they're keeping people out of hospital. So that's basically the immunity story. Now, let's talk about infection on top of that. So you're vaccinated. Now, we went through the whole scenario. The virus gets into your nose, gets into your lung, gets into your body and so forth, through the blood. So we're not totally certain what's happening here, but what I'm interpreting is this. Now, you can keep a lot of those antibodies in your blood because the blood circulation is kind of closed. We've been pumping them out from the plasma cells. So you've got a lot of this stuff circulating around. We can measure that easily. I mean, a scientist takes a blood sample and they measure antibody levels. What they're doing is measuring antibody in blood. Now, you can keep lots of them in your blood, but you, the ones that are up in here, some of them are specialised to try and go into those places, but most of it is it's what we, a molecule we call IgG. And most of it's just spillover. So you've probably got relatively few of them up in the nose. And that's why vaccinated people are getting breakthrough infections with Delta, because it's just a matter of that, that inert virus particle having to hit that cell with the ACE2 on, and then the antibody, an inert particle too with no capacity to move itself around, has got to hit the virus before it hits the cell. And that's not so probable in the nose, which is why we're getting breakthrough infections in the nose we're seeing infected, uh, vaccinated people to some transmitting and growing quite high amounts of virus. And we're all also getting some infection down the lung. But I think what the vaccine is doing is it's stopping or largely stopping that bloodborne phase, which is, I think, the one that kills most people. And so they're taking the virus out. The antibody is the IgG antibody. It's just a Y-shaped molecule. You've probably seen pictures of them. It's got binding sites, which will attached to the virus, stop it infecting the cell. And at the same time, when it attaches to the virus, it does other things that target that complex of virus and antibody for destruction in maybe macrophages or something else. So that's it. 
You want to be vaccinated so you've got good antibody levels in your blood. The vaccine is not going to hurt you. Uh, it's, it's, it's got some known side effects. Um, with adolescent boys, there's a bit of an incidence of myocarditis and so forth. But the risk-benefit equation, and, you know, a vaccination is a medical procedure. Every medical procedure has risk. And basically, the risk-benefit equation with COVID is massively in favour of getting the vaccine. And it's just sense. It's nothing, there's nothing mysterious about it. There's nothing evil about vaccines. And, and all this nonsense is out here is just poisonous and actually murderous because the vaccines are protecting, we know uh, from figures in the US and Israel and all the rest of it, we know the vaccines are keeping 90%, 85 to 95% of people out of hospital. They're not stopping people from getting some symptoms, particularly, I think, respiratory symptoms. They're not stopping people from getting sick. Maybe some people are getting long haul, but the, but the, the reports of long haul clinics say that there are very few, if any, vaccinated people in them, as far as I can follow. So they're stopping you from getting really sick, going to hospital and dying. And really, they're, they're great vaccines. They're as good as any vaccines we've ever had. When you pay for a job site, you should know what you're getting. Get Indeed and only pay for quality candidates that meet your must-have requirements. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all your hiring in one place, even interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. Indeed knows how important it is to make the most of your recruiting hours and dollars. With Indeed, you can save time and money by setting your must-have qualifications and only paying for the quality candidates that meet them. According to TalentNest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash conversations. That's a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash conversations. Once again, Indeed.com slash conversations. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I want to talk a little more to the vaccine skeptic crowd here. I don't know how how closely you followed this this sort of community. I, I, I deal with it. I do it. I'm yeah. actually, you know, I'm, it's probably completely mad, but I've become a kind of agony aunt on Twitter mm. about COVID. And I mm. now, I started out with about 16,000 followers. My publisher got me into it years ago. And I now have 80,000, 84,000 followers. So I'm getting to the stage of being an influencer and people nice. are asking me <laughs> if I want to sell car parts or, or, <laughs> or, or track suits or something. Yeah. I mean, I've climbed that. So I'm active on Twitter. And if you're mm-hmm. active on Twitter, you get in touch with all this sort of stuff. So you're probably aware of, of, of a do- Dr. Pierre Corey. And I'm not sure I know, but what is he saying? He's, uh, he's been very prominent in 
advocating ivermectin as as an 100 percent let me let me talk about so if you could speak a little bit about what what the state of the evidence is on that and how it compares to the vaccine yeah okay just a couple of things about vaccine skepticism first because ivermectin is a drug we're not talking about a vaccine we're talking about it right okay so and a lot of people don't understand the difference between a drug and a vaccine a drug is something you get as a treatment and it gives you it and it it will have a half-life what that means is if you take the drug, uh, once you stop taking it, the virus it will gradually wash out of your blood. And how long it takes to do that and get down to half the level is called the half-life. So a vaccine, a drug will always have a half-life. Okay. And the same is true of the monoclonal antibody treatments, which were passive immunity, which was used to keep President Trump from getting really sick. I mean, this guy, when he got sick, he was given eight grams, I mean, eight grams, that's a lot of stuff, a monoclonal antibody, which kept him out of hospital. And he was starting to get sick, I believe. Anyway, so basically, the, the, um, now, now, oh, the, the vaccine skepticism. There are all sorts of totally erroneous ideas out there. And they're based, in, to some extent, on people who are putting out information. They look at research papers and either deliberately or, or from ignorance, totally misinterpret. Actually, I wrote, I wrote this book some years back. One of the things it tells you, the knowledge wars, one of the things it tells you is how to get good scientific information because scientific papers, many of them are now open access. Anyone can read them. But unless you're a scientist, you don't understand often how the paper's written, why it's written in the way it is. It's a very strange form of writing. And most people aren't able to really well interpret scientific data. So, for instance, there was a paper there that was an investigation of why the uh, virus causes clots. So what they did is they took mice and they made what's called a pseudovirus. Nothing to do with the vaccine. This is something totally different. They had loads of this spike protein on its surface. So it's nothing to do with the vaccine. And they injected the pseudovirus into these mice and they found that the pseudovirus with the spike on it, and they're injecting masses of it, causes clots. Great study. What they're trying to do is mimic the infection in a controlled way where they're giving a nine dose. Now, that's been interpreted as saying the virus, the vaccine puts spike into your blood and causes damage. And it goes into your, your ovaries and causes infertility and so forth. Look, really, the first thing a pregnant woman or any woman who wants to protect herself and her fetus must do is get vaccinated. Not only do you protect yourself from getting the severe disease and becoming anoxic, and the last thing you want, because the baby is getting all its nutrients from your blood, the last thing you want is not to have enough oxygen there. Not only that, the antibodies from the vaccine in later stages of pregnancy will go across into the fetus and protect the fetus. And then when when the baby is born, the very first milk that it gets is called colostrum. It's loaded with antibodies that protect the baby. It's like giving a monoclonal antibody to the baby. So, you know, it has no effect on fertility. This is ridiculous stuff. But it's been put out there in a way that people have cited this. This is a paper from the source. People cite this paper as saying this is why vaccines are dangerous. Nothing to do with vaccines, absolutely nothing. And there's another paper that's been totally misinterpreted that uh, it was a study of infection in tissue culture that says this virus can get into our DNA. I mean, I don't know whether these people are malicious or, or, or 
just stupid or, or insane. I think a bit of everything. Now, yeah. vaccine hesitancy is another thing. People not understanding, being fearful, and even, even the anti-vaccination group, is, it's not a monolithic group. I mean, this includes some people who are simply, for some reason, I don't understand, terrified of vaccine. Well, I think there's, there's a general distrust of big pharma and the government and a, a kind of uh, a sense that the world is controlled by a sort of cabal of evil people that are motivated by profit and somehow that kind of pe- people who have that kind of attitude find it very easy to distrust you, you, anything, you, you, you know, you, you introduce, this has nothing to do with it. Of course, all we're talking about is a product and whether it helps you or not. So you people, you know, as a scientist, the way I think and the way we think is we break a discovery scientist. That's what I do. I discover stuff. Mm-hmm. What we do is we break everything down to basic and then build it up from there. Okay. Yes, I'm, I've had some contact with big pharma over the years. I've never been paid for them. I've never worked for them. I get no money from them. And I get nothing from them. But they do produce things that save our lives. And the fact that many Americans and Australians are living longer than they did than their parents' generation is because big pharma produces statins and it produces anti-blood pressure medication. And, it, and the fact that many kids don't die in childhood is because it produces antibiotics. There's all these things that big pharma produces. Yes, big pharma makes big profits. They say some of that's necessary because they have to write off the cost of development. It can cost a billion dollars to bring a drug to market. So some of that's true. But America is a capitalist society. This is how capitalism works. Basically, people make things, they make profits. There's no conspiracy between government and big pharma. In fact, uh, basically, but the only vaccines that have actually come out there in quantity are actually from the, the Pfizer vaccine comes from pharma. And the one that's being used widely is called the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's got a Vaxavir or something. It, it's being produced by AstraZeneca, both big pharma country. But basically, uh, we wouldn't have these things if we didn't have a pharmaceutical industry, just as we wouldn't have an automobile if we didn't have an automobile industry. And, you know, you can go to a central European, you can go to a communist state if you want and have a communist state produce it, but do Americans want that? What are they talking about? What's the alternative? If you want products out there, you need capitalism. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, I, I also want, want to get you to comment on, on the ivermectin and just to, okay, yeah, just to give you a little overview of, of what's happening ivermectin, here. It's, ivermectin is absolutely wonderful drug. And it was developed by the Merck company, and it's a veterinary drug. It was developed to treat heartworm in dogs, and it was found by uh, a Dr. Campbell, who was the developer of it, that it also was wonderful for stopping a disease called another parasitic disease. Heartworm, obviously a parasite, big thing, not much bigger than bacteria, and uh, you know it will have its own virus infections. But um, so it's great for that. Uh, your dog gets it, and it's used in horses, I think, for some things. And also, but river blindness in humans, it's great. It's a wonderful drug. And the Merck company gave it away it, it, because river blindness is a problem in developing countries. It basically gave the drug away, free, provided it free for everyone who wanted it. And um, Campbell actually got the Nobel Prize for that. 
it, it was a wonderful uh, piece of work and then a wonderful application. Um, by the way, when drug companies charge an enormous amount for something in the United States, they're actually offsetting the cost of providing it much cheaper to poorer countries. There's a kind of something happening here where richer companies, countries are subsidising poorer countries. And uh, there are new drugs coming through for COVID, for instance, but they're both coming from, through from Merck and Pfizer and they'll be expensive, but much less expensive than how many people go to hospital. Let's talk about ivermectin. I'm, I'm, I had a veterinary training, so I knew about ivermectin. Okay, ivermectin, the first studies were actually done here in Melbourne from Monash University and from our institute. It was put into tissue culture with the virus and it was shown that ivermectin had an effect. And there was a good reason to think it had an effect through the molecular mechanism. The only thing that was concerning is that high dose levels looked to be very high. And we're wondering whether it could be used in human. It then went through trials, but for some reason, it's never gone through a trial process that our doctors found acceptable. And there's a whole lot of trials out there. A lot of them are very poorly done and they're pulled together in what we call meta-analysis papers, where you take a lot of small and often poorly performed trials, you try to take all their results together, and then you say, uh, this is what it's doing. And so there's that sort of analysis, but none of our responsible physicians will, will buy into that. And it's now in trial. We have a trial that's just starting in India, uh, looking at giving it very early in the infection, and the Brits have a trial that's just starting there. So my mind is open on ivermectin, but all I've gone by is what my doctor colleagues who are trying to deal with the disease are doing. They use cheap drugs that are off any sort of pattern. They use dexamethasone, an anti-inflammatory laid on, and they use low-dose heparin. These are drugs that have been around forever. They use those. It's not that the drugs are cheap that they rejected. It's not that they wanted to see a lot of money go to Merck. And no government wants to give enormous amounts of money to a drug company if they can actually get something really cheap because all government budgets are under massive pressure, especially with COVID. So ivermectin is still a possibility. Uh, basically, the same trial system, it's called ASCOT, it'll be trialling this ivermectin in India uh, in a properly controlled clinical trial. The same same group, we're going to trial hydroxychloroquine. And we were actually given money by a, um, a US-based philanthropist who, um, who was very keen on hydroxychloroquine. And basically, by the time we got to trying to start the trial, and all the results were coming through and saying from WHO, from all sorts of places, saying, look, it, the, the, the toxicity levels are just too high uh, to mess around with it. That's one of the main concerns with ivermectin is really at the doses it's being used, it's being used in a much higher dose than the dose used for river blindness. Is it toxic and what's the relative benefit of it? But it's still, it's still out there as a possibility. There are also new drugs coming along from Merck and, and, and Pfizer that might be used in the same way as, as, as for treatment. You have to give these things very, very early because antiviral drugs you have to give right at the beginning to knock off the virus. So ivermectin, um, court is still out as far as our doctors are concerned. I just take their lead. Sure. So I, I know that because there, there's, I don't know if you're aware of Brett Weinstein and, and Heather Hying uh, of the Dark Horse podcast, but they have a pretty large podcast where, um, you know, the, the basic summary of some of their guests have been that 
ivermectin may be smarter to take than the vaccine. So what would you say to someone who believes that? No, I, I think that's a misapprehension anyway. Firstly, uh, what you're saying with the, with the jab, the actual vaccine, it's pretty much close to a natural product. You know, mRNAs, there's nothing mysterious about them. We make millions of these things every day within ourselves. We make them to make, we're constantly making proteins and proteins are being destroyed. So we make millions of mRNAs and the body doesn't know the difference between a viral mRNA and, and, a, and one of our mRNAs. It'll just process it exactly the same way. So, and what else is in the vaccine? Well, there's a bit of lipid to stabilize it and help get it into the cell. And there's a bit of a substance called polyethylene glycol, PEG, used commonly in medicine. And many people, people who had hepatitis C virus infection, you know, that was in the drug using population, or people who had contaminated blood, uh, particularly in Egypt from contaminated needles, were given pegylated interferon. It's a very commonly used product in, in medicine. So there's nothing in that vaccine that's mysterious or dangerous. It's mostly just natural stuff. Bit of fat, bit of mRNA, and the only chemical in there is big. Now, what you're saying is rather than get the vaccine, which has very minimal side effect, the mRNA vaccines, about this myocarditis thing you can get in young boys and so forth. Uh, basically, as I understand it, pretty much all of them come out of hospital, they have a bit of hospital time, but myocarditis is just inflammation. Inflammation resolves, it's not permanent damage, and they're going to be fine. And it's a very, very rare side effect. So the vaccine is pretty innocuous, even though it's injecting your arm. And you're talking about, instead of getting the vaccine, you're talking about taking a potentially highly toxic synthetic chemical made by a pharmaceutical company. Now, basically, the fears about Big Pharma and all the rest of it, ivermectin is made by Merck, or it was. I don't know who makes it now, but somebody's making the damn stuff. So you, you're, you've got a chemical a potentially toxic chemical, and you're saying it's better to do take that than to get a, a single jab or two jabs. I mean, honestly, it's nuts. All right. So, um, so I guess for the final topic here, I want to talk about the, the ethics of requiring a vaccine uh, or pressuring citizens by requiring them to have a vaccine to, say, enter a restaurant. Here in New York, I'm not sure what's going on over there, but in New York, we have a law coming into effect in a month and a half, which will require proof of vaccination to enter any you know restaurant or bar in the city and so forth. Basically, cutting off public spaces, most of society to the to the unvaccinated as an incentive to get them to become vaccinated, and you know obviously this is the kind of situation where your decisions affect others, right? It's not, you're, ha- you're, you're free to eat yourself or smoke yourself to death, but secondhand smoke is a problem. You can drink yourself to death, but you can't drink and drive. Uh, you just the principle of internalized versus externalized risk is, risk is relevant here. But at the same time, what you said about what the vaccinations are actually doing seems relevant here, right? Seems like for the breakthrough cases for Delta, the vaccinations aren't so much preventing you from contracting it as they are making it very unlikely that you'll have a serious. Right. So, so and, if and, that's and they, true, should I should I actually as a vaccinated person 
should I care whether there are unvaccinated people in my space if they're not making me more likely to contract it? Are they actually potentially harming me by not getting vaccinated? No, no, I mean, that's a good question. We're having exactly the same debate here. And one of our leading philosophers and ethicists, who's very familiar, I think, to many American audiences is Peter Singer. He's been on the podcast. He's been on this podcast. So Peter does believe that it's legitimate to mandate uh, Mm. the vaccine. He's come out and said that from a philosophical position. Mm. There are two two elements, apart from the basic issue of freedoms, it's a matter of whose freedoms we're talking about. Are we just talking about the freedom of that individual to refuse the vaccine? Or are we talking about the freedoms of, say, healthcare workers who are Mm. going to have to care for this person? if they get very sick. And we do know that the very great majority of people who are being hospitalised now in the United States are unvaccinated. And they're coming into intensive care units. In Dallas, um, I don't know what the situation is at the moment, but several days ago I saw media reports that the ICU beds in the hospital there and uh, the hospitals there in Dallas and in the 19 surrounding districts or whatever they were, were all being used. So if you have Delta patients are going into ICU for a long time, if they get sick, much longer than before. Usual ICU stays is an intensive care unit. And of course, the, the, the ultimate step there is ventilation. You, if you go into ventilation, your chances of surviving are probably 50%. And so basically the ICU beds, normal ICU bed stay is about three days. And that's because someone's had big cardiac surgery and, uh, or something like that, and they don't want to watch them very closely for the next three or four days. The ICU stays with Delta can be weeks, and that's going to do you a lot of damage apart from anything else. And so not only that, in a COVID ICU, you have nurses watching you all the time. It's an enormously intensive form of nursing. If they're not vaccinated, they're at risk. The one group we are vaccinating, mandating vaccination for at the moment in Australia, is healthcare workers in hospital who have COVID patient contact. We are mandating that, at least in the state of Victoria. This is different states, different rules, different different legislation. It's all state-based. So basically, you're talking about the freedom of the individual not to be vaccinated and their freedom to become very sick and die. Firstly, uh, and but that freedom impacts on the health and well-being of the medical people because the medical people are becoming totally exhausted. So if you've got any consideration at all for your fellow citizens, get the vaccine. Basically, the other problem is once your ICU beds are full of COVID patients, which is the case under various in various situations now. And uh, also people coming into those units if they're not vaccinated would be highly likely to be infected if they're not separated off. So basically, once they're full of COVID patients, there's no ICU bed for someone who's shot, for someone who has a motor accident, for someone who has a heart attack, for someone who has tremendous problems in pregnancy or something like that. There's no beds for them. Not only that, the paediatric ICU beds are filling up very fast. Though kids are much less likely to be severely affected because Delta is so much more infected, infectious. Many of them are getting infected, and, of course, they're totally unvaccinated below age 12. So the paediatric ICU beds are filling up 
kids need to be cared for by pediatricians in pediatric hospitals. So if you're not vaccinated, you're contributing to that disaster. You're also, if you get sick, and if your children get sick, and everyone in a household now gets infected with Delta. Used to be when a, the virus came into the household, kids often either were completely asymptomatic or they didn't get infected. Now everyone gets infected. So if you get sick and your children get sick and you have to go to hospital, they don't. Who's going to care for them? Your grandparents aren't. If they're not vaccinated and they're as stupid as you are, so who's going to care for them? So basically mandates. So that's one issue. Mandate is level of threat. Now, you're right about the fact that the vaccinated persons can still infect other people. Uh, possibly not as much, but though we're not sure of that. Really hard to get good data on this. But personally, I'd like to know if I'm going to a restaurant that I'm not going to be placed in contact with serving staff and with other patrons who are not vaccinated. That's part of my rights. And so basically, it's one set of rights against another set of rights. I think the idea that we have rights without responsibility is an absurd and dangerous one. It's never been embedded in anyone who wrote about freedom, uh, whether it be Mill or Hume or anybody else. Anyone who wrote about freedom does not assume that people have rights and no responsibility. They have responsibility to themselves, they have responsibility to their family, they have responsibility to the community. Now, a particularly dangerous situation for us is we have very remote, we're an enormous country with a very small population. Our rural towns are small in many cases. In many cases, they'll have one doctor, and some don't even have a doctor, they just have a nurse. And our Indigenous communities are notoriously susceptible to very high problems with influenza. So what do we do there? I mean, if we go into those communities, should we mandate vaccination? How do we get people out of remote communities? We can't drive them. The distances are too great. We've got to bring them out in an air ambulance. How many air ambulances can we deploy? I mean, how do we get these people to hospitals in big cities where they can get the resources that save their life? I mean, so basically not getting the vaccine is simply, to my mind, an exercise in ignorance and stupidity. The other thing about this, I think there's probably people in the audience listening to this right now thinking, you know, people who have a general distrust of the media consensus about anything. because. In truth, sometimes that consensus is wrong, right? So for instance, the idea that that coronavirus came from a lab used to be dismissed as something only a conspiracy theorist and nut job could possibly think. But now it's, you know, many, many people think it's plausible. Basically, what we do know about the origin of the coronavirus is almost certainly it's come out of bat, like the original SARS virus. What we also know about the coronaviruses is that before the year 2000, we had two of these circulating in human populations, and we'd known about them since the 1960s. Uh, the original, that was when they were first discovered, and an electromicroscopist in London called June Almeida took pictures of them, and she saw this corona-type structure on top of the spike, which we've all seen in various media, and she called them coronaviruses. So there were two of them. They caused common colds in croup, all of us get infected with them from time to time. They don't cause any particular concern. And then, but since, so two of them before 2000, since 2000, five of them have come across into the human population and cause human disease. Two before 2000, five since. Now, what's going on here? The first of them was the original SARS virus, 
which came into humans, we know this, through uh, bats infecting a little animal called a civet cat, which is a wild animal in China and which basically is trapped. And Chinese eat a lot of wildlife. It's part of their culture. It's part of their cultural thing. And uh, we know that it went from bats to civet cats, then to animal handlers and to people in an animal market in China. And then it got spread all over the place because of Chinese New Year, because everyone was going home. People carried the infection. The only place it was carried outside Asia was actually Toronto. And uh, it didn't go global. It killed 10% of people. So it was more lethal than this virus, but it wasn't as infectious. And it just burned out. It just went away. So I don't think that's going to happen with COVID-2. Then we've got two more common cold coronaviruses. Now, one of them may have been around before and we maybe missed it, but there are two, two more circulating. They're circulating in humans now. We've got the Middle Eastern virus, MERS, it's called. We think it goes from bats to camels to people. And it's still circulating, uh, grumbling away in the Middle East and so forth. It kills 30% of people, it infects, but it's much less infectious. So that's going. And then we've got COVID 2. So we've now got, we've still, we've got four coronaviruses circulating, four additional ones circulating since 2000. So what's going on there? Well, firstly, I think it's largely due to the fact that we have seen an enormous increase in prosperity in China and we're seeing a lot of passenger air travel and business air travel out of China. And I think that's what's carrying it out. It's the planes. That's how these viruses fly. They fly in planes. They fly in us and they fly in planes. So concerning the origins of this virus, there was initial, it seemed to cluster around the Wuhan seafood market, which also had the animal market. It's a big market. And that was the original uh, sort of perception that had gone from bats. There was an idea the pangolin, a really weird creature, might have been involved, and then to people. That, that was never proven, never found in pangolins. So we didn't find an intermediate host. Then uh, I think concerns were raised about it being, and there was all sorts of stuff about biological warfare. You know, Trump was fueling it in his usual fashion, and, and, and he started it, actually. And, um, and so people were concerned about the origins. Now, all we can say about the virus origins is this. If you look at the virus, it doesn't look as though it's been manipulated in any way to be more dangerous in humans. So there was some stuff about uh, early on, but most people sort of got beyond that and say, yes, that's what, how these viruses work. So it's possible it got out of a lab. It's possible that someone isolated this virus in the field. Uh, there were people studying these viruses very intensely because we want to know what's out there. I mean, that's Common, common sense. These are potential human pathogens. We want to know what's out there. If we can sort of get ahead of the game, uh, that'd be great. And there's, there's many more in the bats that could be a threat to us. So yeah. actually, actually a couple, couple more questions occur to me uh, on this topic. Yeah, you're yeah. fine. It could have been isolated. It could have been isolated. It could have been in the lab mm-hmm. and it could have got out of the lab. How would it get out of the lab? A very high security lab. So that, you know, top level labs, there's no doubt about that. We, we, one of our people, Daniel Anderson, very experienced virologist, has worked in Australia and Singapore with, with one of the top, top bat virus guys, a guy called Lin Fa Wang, was actually working in the Wuhan lab through, no, through November of 2019 when this would have been happening. So she was working in the lab. She said there was no sort of discussion of a possibility of a virus escape. And then she was at a meeting. And she'd left the lab at the end of November. She was at a meeting in Singapore where a lot of the Chinese scientists came across no, no restriction on movement, no concern. 
none of them talking about the possibility of a lab escape. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. I mean, what could have happened is maybe someone got an asymptomatic infection, which can happen with this virus, and carried it out of the labs. That, that's possible. But there's no evidence that that did happen. And basically, even some of the people who thought this might be a likely scenario, when they've gone back and looked at it, they say, well, it doesn't really work because the lab's miles away from where this thing seemed to kick off. It did seem to kick off around the seafood market. It's miles away from there, 50 miles or something, 50K. And they've got a secondary lab, which is also, I think, even further away. So why postulate it? There's no real reason to say it did. It's not impossible that it got out of that. There's simply no reason to say that it did. And what makes me angry about it is what the people who are saying is, well, it got out of the lab, definitely got out of the lab. Firstly, they have no evidence. And secondly, what that says is doing the science of these things is dangerous. And that's dangerous. We need to do the science of these things. We need to know what's out there threatening us. Part of the job, you know, science is there to serve humanity. And it's served humanity. It's made fantastic vaccines. It's making drugs and so forth. That's the only protection we've got. And uh, apart from changing human behaviour, as we all know, changing human behaviour is an enormous... Very difficult, issue. yeah. Because, I, I don't know, people, some, some of us, like scientists, are trained to approach everything through dissecting what it's all about, what's the motivations here when we're seeing political involvement, why are they saying this, why are they doing it? So we do that all the time. That's what we do. That's the way we work, the way we think. But a lot of people take stuff on authority. They get it from their parents or their church or something. Just dogmatic belief and acceptance of dogma. Mm. And honestly, you know, I understand it because I grew up in the world, not in some sort of spaceship <laughs> or, a, or, or a bubble, but honestly, it drives me nuts. So in, in five years... What do you think is the, the likely scenario? Is COVID going to be a disease that is constantly you know, mutating into new variants, but is, is that a kind of equilibrium like the flu where you get your COVID shot every winter or something like that? What do you think is likely going to happen? I, th- I think it's going to be, uh, we're going to get an equilibrium with this. And I think the US is approaching that quicker than we are. You've got a large number of people have been infected and they are relatively immune. By the way, everyone who's been infected will be much better, have much better immunity if they get two shots of the vaccine. That's very clear. Sometimes immunity gives us much from infection, gives us much worse protection against reinfection. We knew reinfection was happening by late, by sort of August last year, because I wrote about it. We knew people were getting reinfected, partly because we've got these very sensitive tests and we're testing people we would normally test when they're coming in at airports, for instance. So basically, if you've had the infection, get the boost. But I think once many, many people have had the infection, once we get everyone vaccinated, and that, to my mind, includes kids down to to infancy, once the vaccines are shown to be safe and effective for them, those trials are ongoing in the United States now. We're vaccinating, you can vaccinate down to age 12, but those trials are ongoing now. So if that's fine, I think I'd like to see as many as possible. I think once that happens, providing the virus doesn't undergo some dramatic change, what we call an immune escape mutant, I think we'll be in much better space. So I think the US, particularly, UK, UK, we're already starting to see it happen, I think, will be in much better shape next year than it is now. 
And that's going to be the future of it. Now, none of the Delta variant, which is the one we're really worried about, is simply a virus, to my mind, that simply, it evolved in India. It's been around since December last year, but yet nobody had much heard of it until I think May, maybe this year. So it's been around since December last year, was in India, and it evolved and developed in a country where there was no, no vaccine available at that time. So it's a virus that simply developed and mutated and changed. These viruses do mutate a bit, not nearly as much as flu. Flu mutates at a much, much higher rate, as does AIDS virus. But it developed in what we call a virgin soil population where there was no immunity. We saw exactly the same with what happened in Zika a few years back when it got into South America. Virgin soil population went right through the community and, and we saw all these uh, abnormalities in new babies. Um, we haven't been so worried about that since because a lot of those people are now immune. So, so I think what will happen is we'll get good broad immunity. Uh, some will have great immunity, some not so great. We'll probably need booster shots. And whether we need booster shots against variants I'm not clear, but we'll, we'll know. So I think actually by the second half of next year, even early next year, we should be in much better shape. Yeah. All right. And then final, final scary question. Is there anything in principle that would prevent a virus that was as deadly as MERS, but as infectious as say the Delta variant? You know, there's no really definitive answer. You know, there, there are, Viruses that are infinitely more horrible than COVID, and, and one is obviously Ebola virus. I mean, it, it's extraordinarily lethal, and it also comes out of bats probably. But basically we don't worry so much about Ebola because it's so lethal and so obvious if someone's got it that we immediately jump on it. Mm. So I've never been worried about an Ebola pandemic so, because we just it does spread between humans, but it's so bad. We get onto it fast. I think what's, what's so difficult with COVID 2 is that many people are relatively asymptomatic, particularly younger people, and, and they spread it. And that, that's an ideal situation for a virus that's spreading. If it's making everybody sick, it will spread a lot less. Okay? Right. So I think a virus that kills, but I think we could have a virus that, say, killed 5% and had that sort of, co- sort of characteristic. But I think what we've learned is how we might be able to handle these things. I think the mRNA vaccines have been a revolution, and I think that will allow us to maybe respond quicker. And what's happening now is the United States National Institutes of Health has, apart from the drugs that are coming forward, there's two drugs coming forward that look as though they could be used to treat people early, and if they, maybe if they were given early to everybody, they'd stop the transmission. But the National Institutes of Health also has an enormous program where they're going to make, uh, look for drugs against all these potential viruses of threat. Now, we have, we know that the viruses against influenza work for all the influenza strains, mutant strains, A viruses, B viruses, C viruses. They work against all of them because they target parts of the virus replication and so forth. So if you give them early, they're great. So we're, what we're doing or what NIH is funding and what big companies are doing too for COVID, but not probably for other things, is develop drugs that will target all these viruses like the Ebola-type viruses, 
We've got another set of problems down in Southeast Asia called antiviruses. They're, they're also a worry. And we'll have drugs there for people that have been through some sort of trial process and ready to go into large-scale manufacture that would counter these things. So as a result of COVID, if we've got another coronavirus like MERS coming across, I think by next year and certainly within the next couple of years, we'll have good drugs available for day one. And we may have to manufacture them in large, much larger amounts. But if we had a, an outbreak, say, in Southeast Asia or somewhere, and if that's properly reported and people get onto it fast, one of the things you might do is to deploy a drug, a, a stockpile of drug to that place immediately and also stop the planes flying out of there immediately. Mm. Um, one of the ways we stopped the virus in Australia earlier on is, is we stopped all flights from China very early on in this process, long mm. before the United States did. By the time President Trump stopped the tr- planes from China, the virus was coming in from Europe. Well, um, on that note, I think this, this conversation has, has come to a conclusion. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on my show. You know, it's, it's not often that I feel at the end of a conversation that it may have saved a life, but this is one of those rare episodes. So I encourage everyone listening to this to, to follow you on social media, to pick up your books. And uh, do you have a website or something that you'd like to yes, point people to? Yes, if you go to the website, we can send you that information. I'm a, uh, Teresa, I've just published a book on the, uh, this now on COVID. That's called An Insider's Plague. You can get it from an Australian distributor at the moment, either as a print or ebook. I'll get uh, Teresa to send you the, um, the links to our website. I've been writing a weekly column of about 800 to 1,000 words now for uh, since April last year, and now up to number 70, dealing with some of these issues. We've also got some, you know, that hand-waving thing I did? Yeah. We've just recorded a couple of those for our website. Good. So the, the address of our website, the series of, that I've been writing for, is called Setting It Straight. And I can uh, either email or Teresa can email you the links. Yeah, yeah, and, please uh, do. Yeah. But, um, and basically, I'm generally more more politic with referring to vaccine reviews and so forth on, on uh, Twitter than I have been here because I think I would expect that people who are tuning into your podcast are a re- pretty intelligent bunch of people. But I think people do need to realise that they're just taking a major and totally unnecessary risk by not being vaccinated. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And a lot of the purpose of, of this podcast was to try to convey that message to my audience because I haven't spoken much about it yet. So yeah. Yeah. It's the only reason I'm on Twitter really is to try and try and get good information to people. And, but I, I must say, I, I, it, it's totally exhausting. I'm not sure how much more time I can give to it really. It's uh, it's, it's very draining. Well, well you're, you're great at it. So please don't stop yet. This has been a really great conversation. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, I hope people enjoy this and, and uh, follow uh, your commentary. Yeah, well, I hope everyone stays safe. Get the booster shot when it's available. All right. Thanks. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.